Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, if you will, turn to Psalm 73 with me. And um, if you need an outline, uh, there's some at the back, some up here. If you came in late, feel free to get one. Uh, This psalm begins what is called book three of the psalms. Uh, different sections in God's hymnal that he wrote here. And uh, this one has as uh, its human author, the first few here in book three have as a human author, someone named Asaph from other places in God's word. We find out he was the worship leader in the temple during David's reign as king. And then the content of this psalm, it has the same theme and same message as Psalm 49 and a few others. And it's this, um, life here and now not making a whole lot of sense for the Christian. Asaph testifies in this psalm uh, about when his faith almost crashed down because he had been spending too much time gazing on the seeming success of the wicked while the righteous seemed to know little but suffering in life. Let's read it together. Psalm 73 says it's a psalm of Asaph. And then verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. And therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than their heart could wish. And they are corrupt, they speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people turn return hither. And waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. And when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How they're brought into desolation. As in a moment they're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh. So O Lord when thou awakest. Thou shalt despise their image. And thus my heart was grieved. And I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I. And ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart 
my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. And what we're presented with here in really the first 16 verses, the first half of this psalm, is that question. Why is it that people who love the Lord and live for uh, him and live according to his word, why do they seem to have so much suffering in life when people who don't really have any regard for God, um, they seem to be doing okay and sometimes even pretty blessed. Uh, it's a relevant dilemma. <laughs> Asaph asked this question. David did in Psalm 49. There's a couple of other Psalms that deal with it and we deal with it here in 2021, don't we? To some regard. Um, the prosperity of the wicked, it's frustrating for us. Verse 1 is, is kind of like a thesis statement. It's actually the conclusion. It's like going to the end of the story and reading uh, what truth is. Because uh, there's a big turn between verses 1 and 2. But in this thesis statement, Asaph comes to the conclusion that God helped him reach and what he wants to teach us. And it's this, God is good no matter what we're facing. <laughs> No matter what our experiences are or our circumstances are, truly God is good to Israel. He's good to his people, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now we might rightly think that this can't describe any one of us and in some way that's true uh, in and of ourselves. We do not have a completely clean heart. We do not have a pure heart um, as believers until we reach heaven or until Christ returns for us, we will not be entirely pure or free from sin. But the concept in verse 1 is not perfection. Uh, it's a humble and honest, open heart before God. It's about his people who desire him and value him and what he offers in his grace. They, they desire that above all else. Now, verses 2 and 3 are where Asaph begins uh, to kind of testify of his frustration and his complaint. It's his testimony uh, of what he was like and where he was at in his faith when he did what verses 3 to 16 describe. He says, my feet were almost gone. Uh, his steps in walking with God and faith had, had nearly slipped. He had almost lost his confidence in God and, and the value system that God gives us in his word by looking at the seeming, and that's an important word there, by looking at the seeming prosperity of the wicked. That word prosperity, it's that Hebrew word shalom. Uh, that means peace. And not just the absence of fear or terror or struggle, but actually the presence of blessing. And he said, it looks like people who are wicked and who don't live according to your word, they have peace, they have prosperity. Have you ever been there trying to figure out why people who have no interest in God, they might even be against God, uh, his word and his will, they seem to go through life rather problem-free while those who love God and do their best to live according to his word and his will for their lives, they can at times face uh, serious struggles, problems uh, on every side. And sometimes it feels like life is one big, long struggle. And that's exactly what verses 4 and 5 describe as far as the wicked. There's no bands in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. And if we do not look at the entire situation, if we were to stop there, and we ought not because the psalm goes on, if we don't look at uh, these circumstances with the eyes of faith, if we take off biblical lenses, well, we can come to the same 
faith-destroying conclusion that Asaph is at right now. Um, it may not be a fear. We would, uh, so many times we have these moving from fear to faith kind of outlines in Psalms. It may not be a fear like David felt when he was running from Saul because Saul was trying to kill him um, or when others were speaking against David. But there's still an element of fear when we wonder, is our value system correct? Like how, how we've decided to live. Did we make the right choice? Especially when we see what Asaph has seen. Um, have we been investing our lives in something that's not as rewarding as God promises in his word? Let's look at the practices of the wicked. Verses 6 to 16 talk about them. Verse 6 says their sinful actions are so prideful. Uh, they're even violent. Uh, it's like they are wearing them. It compasses them around their pride. It surrounds them. Uh, it's like clothes. Their violent actions are like clothes that they wear. Wicked people do wickedness out in the open, uh, not even trying to hide their wicked practices. Verse 7 says their eyes stand out in fatness, and the King James uh, just indicates an abundance of prosperity. Um, no want. Their eyes are, are literally bulging out like the whole rest of them. Uh, from a life of too much of a good thing. And then the implication is that those who live God's way are, are often without this level of abundance. Verses 8 and 9. They're corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. So these verses describe them mocking anyone who doesn't do things their way. Sometimes that can even spur us on to accept their value system. Um, their abundance is usually from the oppression of others and it works or at least it seems to by their value system they believe they're not being held to account by God or anyone else so why not keep on doing what they're doing why live any other way attitude is somewhat of a, a grab life by the horns get what's mine while I can Verse 10 is painful to read. It says, therefore, his people return here. And waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. Whose people? Where? God's people. His people, it says. There are times that professing believers live this way. Asaph was tempted to. David was tempted to. And you and I, we're consistently attempted to, uh, to align our values with the world's values to focus on temporal gain rather than eternal treasure. And there's plenty of professing Christians who at least for a time fall to this temptation. Even those who claim to be saved, they can at times join in this faulty worldview and they can ask the question of verse 11. How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Asaph summarizes his hypothesis here after evaluating the situation in verse 12. He says, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world and they increase in riches. What they're doing is working. The ungodly, those who don't even think about God or what he commands, they live in prosperity. Different word here, not shalom, it's shalab. They live in quiet ease and wealth. Seems like they're rewarded for their wickedness, God, and it doesn't make sense. That's what Asaph's telling us here. And this would be the conclusion for us too if we only look to what we can see happening. 
If we disregard the value system that is presented in the word of God, and when we take off eyeglasses or lenses of faith and only look at this worldview through the world's eyes. Look at verses 13 and 14. That's what Asaph says. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. I made the wrong choice following the Lord, uh, living by God's word. I've washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I've been plagued. They don't have that. I've been chastened every morning. So we come to the conclusion that the ungodly and the wicked are right and that they're rewarded. And we've made a wrong choice in following the Lord and doing all we can to align ourselves with his word. We've made a wrong choice in living here and now for then and there. And that is why there's not just carnal people in the world, that's to be expected, but sometimes there's also carnal people even in or associated with the church. They do the same thing that Asaph testifies he did here. They might not ever say it. Definitely not in church, right? That's what verse 15 says. If I say, I will speak thus, I will speak this way, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Asaph himself, he was hesitant to say this. Uh, God inspired him to write this, but many still live this way. And it's a painful way of living, having one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It's emotionally wrecking to be so hypocritical professing to live by God's values, but actually living by the world's. And if we're honest, I think all of us uh, would have to admit that there's been times in our life when we asked Asaph's 16 verse long question, maybe just here. Unfortunately, too many of us stop there and we continue to evaluate and base our lives on this faulty premise. And that's the thing. It's a faulty premise. It's an incorrect worldview. It's devoid of the truth of God's word and the value system that's in it. Don't stop here. Don't. Uh, don't stay here at this incorrect way of looking at life. Asaph didn't. He got and he gave us a, a reality dose in verses 17 to 26. The first thing we see is a, a shifted perspective. It says it's painful for me in verse 16. Until. Here's a shifted perspective. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Asaph says that this was my conclusion until I went into the sanctuary of God. And that's where he got a new outlook on life. He finally got an accurate estimation of this situation. So what or where is the sanctuary of God? Because that's pretty important. Uh, we don't want to have incorrect info to live our life by. If this helped Asaph to understand truth and reality, where can we go to experience the same revelation? Well, the sanctuary of God in Hebrew, uh, the word is mikdash, and it just means a sacred or holy place, a place that is set apart. It's used in God's word to describe locations set apart to encounter God, like Moses at the burning bush. That was a sanctuary. Uh, for David, sometimes the sanctuary wasn't a sanctuary. It was in a cave where he encountered God. Um, it's a place where we can come to know him. A place where we can hear from him. A place where we can see God and get his view on the matter. And that his view is different than Asaph's view so far. So we can undoubtedly apply it to church. It would be a mistake not to. Not, not the building as much as the, the people of God who meet here. But since this is where they assemble, yeah, I mean, it would apply to the building as well. Hopefully, this is a place where God is encountered. It would pain me if it was not. 
Um, there's nothing like it on earth, not the building again, the people here. There's nothing like you on earth. Did you know that? You're a rare, precious treasure. Um, nothing can help correct the faulty premise of the first 16 verses like being with others who share the same values that you do because you share them in Jesus Christ and because you share them because they're derived from one uh, infallible source, the word of God. It's truth that is able to transform your life. It's a place where faulty premises that we hear day in and day out can be corrected. And that reorientation, that shifted perspective, it can also happen outside of the walls or outside of this assembly, and it should. It's a place uh, where we can encounter God. It can be in our home. It can be in our car. It could be at work. Uh, it's through daily time in his word, and it's through communion with him in prayer. Those things are just as essential. Um, whether it's by yourself or whether it's with your family, um, wherever you're encountering God is a place that's a sanctuary, wherever you are and wherever you meet with God. What does Asaph realize when his perspective is shifted here in this sanctuary? Because we're still here at verse 17. Well, what will we recognize if we follow his lead and we go to this sanctuary to encounter God? Well, verse 18 starts it out. I'm not in a slippery place. They are. What it says, you cast them down into destruction. Um, I don't want to experience that, do you? So I'm glad I'm getting a reorientation here about God's value system. Verse 19, they don't have it so good. I thought they did. I spent 16 verses talking about the wonderful life of the wicked, how they're pain-free and trouble-free, and they seem to have it all together. That's not the case. Uh, Asaph says, what I thought was good, what they had, what I thought they had that, that could be good, sometimes is gone in a moment, isn't it? Have you ever seen that? Somebody who just loved things, <laughs> or they put all their faith in a thing or, or a person, and all of a sudden it's gone like that. Verse 19, how they're brought into desolation, as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terror. And that's, that's even something beyond the fact of it gone. They, they may put on an air of happiness, but their life is utterly consumed with terror continually because of the threat of everything evaporating in a moment and them not being able to do a single thing about it. Verse 20. As a dream, when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. When this occurs, when everything that they've been depending on, when it, everything they've been loving is gone in a moment, and it does occur, when they lose what they made, their everything, well, it's like a dream. It's gone. Temporary, transient, and what a waste. That's what Ace is telling us here. Don't fall to that foolish value system. Verses 21 and 22, Asa says, When I finally realized this, my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. That's an old King James word for kidneys. And back then, in Asa's day, um, when you had a lot of emotional distress, you felt it in your guts, right? We'd say we got butterflies in our stomach. We don't. We just feel like we're upset, nauseated. And for them, it was in their reins, in their kidneys. He says, uh, I was foolish, God. I was ignorant, verse 22. 
I was as a beast before you. So Asaph describes where this shifted perspective now took him. It took him to a grief that led to repentance for the way he was thinking in the first 16 verses. He says, man, I had it all wrong. Uh, just thinking about me almost slipping, uh, almost giving up on God and his word and his will, throwing all that away for what will surely go away. He says, it pierced me down deep. He says, I thought I knew it all. I thought I knew what would lead to happiness. But I was being foolish there for 16 verses. I was like an animal that's driven only by instinct and it's incapable of thinking long term or delaying gratification. So what's it like to depend on the Lord? And we begin in verse 23 there. Nevertheless, I'm continually with thee. You have hold, holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. Afterward, receive me into glory. So what we've got here, uh, as far as a value system goes, he's already looked at the value system of the world. Now he's going to talk about God's value system in his word. And he's given us a very sure prospectus. Do you know what a prospectus is? Some of you who are into investments might. Um, well, I, I'm not into investments. But I watch football, and for some reason they put investment information on the commercials in between football games. You know, go to the Hartford, invest in this mutual fund. But one thing they say, after telling you how wonderful of a fund it is, the very last thing that they will say, or in really tiny print at the bottom, it will say, past performance doesn't necessarily guarantee future results. Because it can. This can. This is a sure prospectus. Never failed investment is what God has given us here. What do the ungodly not have that we do? What riches do the righteous have that uh, wicked will never acquire or enjoy? And we have them forever. Well, verses 23 and 24 talk about it. We have God's I will never forsake you Christian presence. That's what we have. Um, we have the wisdom from God's word. We have this perspective. We have the ability to understand and obey his word. The ungodly and the wicked, they don't have such an eternally life-transforming treasure. We have God's guidance, it talks about there. His, his leading us like sheep, a, a good and powerful shepherd. Look at verses 25 and 26. Asaph cries out, this is a big change from what he was talking about earlier. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? There's no one on earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. Ultimately, what do we have that they don't have? We have God. That's what we have. Uh, relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. An eternally secure, forever relationship with a God who loved you enough to die for you. That's priceless. You can't, it won't ever be taken from us. It won't ever be lost. It's worth so much more than any temporary peace or prosperity that the ungodly and the wicked pursue or that they boast in. We have the greatest treasure of all. The thing that we ought to desire, just like Asaph does here, more than anything else on earth. In verse 26, we can lose our health. We can lose our wealth. Our flesh can fail. We can get sick. Uh, we can lose our house, our career. We can never lose, can never lose the treasure that we have in our relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We can lose our home, everything we own, but we can never lose God and all that he is for us in Christ. 
I wish we'd learn what the tribe of Levi learned. Back in Numbers, uh, God was parceling out the Canaan land to them. They had just got in. Judah, you were going to get this chunk. It's a good one. Issachar, you'll get this area. Dan, you'll get this area. Simeon, this area. What about Levi? Nothing. Didn't get land. But you know what God told them? God told Levi, I am your portion and inheritance, Levi. You got me. (laughs) I think the tribe of Levi made out better than any of the rest of them. And what God is presenting to us and what he's asking of us here in Psalm 73, he's saying this, I am priceless. Christian, I am priceless. I'm more than enough. But am I? It also asks that question. Am I more than enough? God's saying in Psalm 73 here, is relationship with me more than enough? Or do you need the temporal, transient things and pleasures of stuff here that the wicked pursue? Even the good stuff here. Careers. We are made to work. Not a bad thing. What does it do to your faith when you can't? Or you lose that job? about entertainment? I like entertainment. I don't know about you. I like to have a good time. But when you can't do that favorite thing, or if it's taking you away from the Lord, what does it do to your faith? Even relationships. I can't think of life without my wife. But if God decided to reward her and bring her home, what would it do to my faith? Can I really say what he says here in verse 25? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none on earth that I desire the way I desire you, God. Can I say when my flesh and my heart fails? Can I say like Levi? God's the strength of my heart. God's my portion. He's my inheritance forever. So God's asking us, are they worth more to you than the I am? Because he is. He is more than enough. And Asaph's saying, don't let your feet get gone. Don't let your steps slip by how you answer that question, by how you act. No, be like Asaph. In the last two verses, 27 and 28, he makes a resolute decision here, quite the turnaround from how this started. Here's its product. When you make this resolution, uh, this decision to, uh, to value God above all else, this is what it will do. When, when you and I decide that the I am is more than enough, that, that he is worth everything to us, well, we won't get distracted or detoured by temptations like verses 2 to 16 describe. That worldview that's coming at us in just about every commercial, <laughs> any ad that's in between posts on social media, says, you got to have this. How can you live without this? We won't get distracted or detoured by it. Not when we make a decision like he does here in verses 27, 28. For for lo, they that are far from thee, they shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. But it's good for me to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. We will realize that those who don't have the Lord don't have anything. (laughs) They don't have what we have, a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Those who are, as it says in verse 27, those who are far from thee, man, I thought they had everything. And really, they have nothing. Nothing that matters. No peace. 
No true prosperity. According to verse 27, only perishing and destruction. That's what's ahead for them. And it's true. I think if we put on the eyes of faith and biblical lenses, we, we would see that. And Christians who've fallen for this faulty premise, this incorrect worldview and value system, who, who want peace and happiness so badly, but are abandoning the only source that can actually provide it, how sad to chase after things that have a 100% track record of never providing it. Only destruction, only perishing. Recognizing and applying the truth of verses 17 to 26, it will lead us. It will lead you to make a resolute decision not to allow this to happen in your life. And when you do that, God alone, not those things, God alone gets the glory. And whenever that happens, when God gets the glory, we get the good. That's what he talks about. Verse 28, it is good for me to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God, not those things that they trust in. And I've done it that I may declare all that works. That's a powerful purpose God gives us in making this decision. People who live by truth and who see God's perspective on this and who won't yield to the temptation of this world's value system Christian, they are the loudest gospel proclamation out there. They really are because they are so different than this world. Um, they, if you will do this, you will preach from a portable pulpit wherever you are. Better than I ever could. And, and you'll do it sometimes without even speaking a word. This is a go against the flow type of lifestyle. Um, it will cause a good and gospel pointing uncomfortable response in others. Those who live by this world's value system, they won't get you. And they shouldn't. <laughs> they shouldn't. Something's wrong when our life makes sense to an unbeliever. They don't understand you. And at some point, they'll ask questions. And when they do, you know what you have this great opportunity to do? The last phrase there of verse 28, you can declare all of his works. And that's the purpose of living according to God's value system and to recognizing the facts and moving from a fear that you've made the wrong decision to faith. It's good for us to draw near to God. It's good for us to say, like Asaph does here in verse 28, I have put my trust in the Lord God. It's a powerful way to preach the gospel by living it out in front of those who haven't heard it, pointing them to God and his offer of eternal life and treasure declaring all his works. So my question for you tonight is, will you make a resolute decision to not allow the temptation that Asa faced in the first 16 verses to negatively affect your life? Will you do it tonight? Do it tomorrow. Because you'll have more commercials. You'll have more ads. You'll have more people at work that pull up in a new beautiful truck. And yours is a one-year-old beautiful truck. You'll have, you'll have that temptation come. You'll have the have I chosen wrong in life temptation come. And so we need to focus on the facts of verses 17 to 26 and then move to the faith of verses 27 to 28 and say with Asaph, I put my trust in the Lord God. Let's sing together tonight. We'll have a couple of songs as we close. I encourage you to do that as we sing.
sing a, sing a prayer to God that he will help you make that same resolute decision that Asaph did.